Okay, our uh, sermon today is going to be Exodus 9. It's verses 13 through 21. This is the plague of hail, part one. It's going to take two uh, weeks to get through the plague of hail. So starting in verse uh, 13, it says, uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people, and that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. From time to time, someone will bring up this old tale. You hear it at the beginning of a sermon about the uh, guy who was questioned by his pastor why he stopped coming to church. The guy's response was that he didn't see any point in it because by Monday he didn't remember anything about the sermon. Hey, Brian, I missed church Sunday. What did the pastor speak about? Well, he'd think about it and he couldn't remember. So it wasn't of really any value to him. So he just stopped going. And the pastor then asked, Brian, what did you have for dinner last Tuesday night? Brian's answer, I have no idea. Why? The pastor's response was, you've been eating three meals a day for your entire life, and you might remember a handful of them. But every one of them nourished you until the next meal. Without them, you would waste away, and yet you can't remember them? Sometimes remembering isn't the point. Instead, it's the nourishment that you get in the process. And I think about that from time to time. I heard it years ago. But I'd like to go a little bit further. In a meal, there are all kinds of things you might eat. Normally, we don't eat just a bowl full of potatoes or a bowl full of all different foods that have been parade together. Instead, we generally have some meat, we have some vegetables, we have some bread, a good dessert and a nice drink that we like and so on. And if there's something in the meal that we really, really like, we'll savor each bite of it. If you're like me, suppose you like asparagus. You're gonna eat each stalk slowly and with delight. And even more, the things that are really good for you are the things that your mom or your wife will try to get you to eat. At least my wife and my mom do. All right? Those are the things that make you strong. They make you mentally competent and so on. And yet by Tuesday, you probably won't remember any of it. The sermons at the superior word here are not made only of potatoes, nor are they just a lot of pureed food which is whipped together. Instead, they're made of the most delightful food from the Word of God because they are based solely on the Word of God. Line by line, bite by bite, we consume each tasty morsel. So don't be disappointed if you don't remember what you ate here on Sunday morning. All right, you get to Monday afternoon and you think, what did Charlie talk about? What you are consuming is my special meal. It's prepared for you with the ingredients which are provided by the Lord in the honest hope and intent of you growing to be healthy and wise and competent in your faith, in your Bible knowledge, and in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If the details seem overwhelming, they aren't. 
The meal is prepared. It is just the right portion, and the table is set. And so pay attention, because this Tuesday, I'm going to be calling every one of you to see if you remember what I talk about. All right? Our text verse for today comes from Job 23. It's the 12th verse. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job said that he treasured the words of the Lord more than his own necessary food. Do you feel this way? Can you honestly say that your time, which is in church, is spent to feed your hungry soul? If so, I got to tell you, I rejoice in you with my deepest heart. And if I do, how much more the Lord who gave us this wondrous, superior word. Let's rejoice in it now and all the days of our life. May it be so. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought, and I have three thoughts for you today. The first is that my name may be declared in all the earth. It's verses 13 through 17. Now we're about to enter into the details of the seventh plague to come on Pharaoh and on Egypt. The sixth plague came and it went with no recorded effect on Pharaoh at all, except the continued hardening of his heart. There was no petition for the plague to end there. And there was no hint of any release as during some of the other plagues. The suffering of his subjects, even to the magicians who stood before him, had no effect on him. And so now the seventh plague will be added to what has already come about. However, there are differences in this plague than all of the others so far. This one is introduced with an exceptionally long and fearful warning, which is directed specifically at the heart of Pharaoh. Because his heart has been so hardened in the past, it would be directly attacked in this manner. There is the claim that Pharaoh will realize the uniqueness of Jehovah. There is a note that up to this point, the Lord had withheld his power and actually shown mercy rather than coming at him with all of the weight and force that he could have. But there's also an explanation from the Lord as to why he has followed this path, which is that he may show his power through the plagues in order that his name would be declared in all of the earth. Pharaoh is being told explicitly now of the reason why these things have happened, and yet it's still not going to change him. He will still have to suffer through the final plagues before it does. This shows an immense dullness and obstinacy in the man. Think of when a person takes and pushes another person around to get them angry, and every person around him says, don't let him do it. He's just doing this to get you riled up, and yet the instigator prevails because he understands the weak spot of the individual. That is something akin to Pharaoh here and what he's going through. Even with the advance notice, he still follows the very path which he has been told about. The seventh plague will be the first which actually brings destruction on human life. Unlike the others which merely afflicted them, this one is life-threatening and it is life-consuming. This plague will also be far more destructive because it will not only come against livestock, but against crops as well. It will literally be able to ravage the whole country in a much greater way. And further, it will be a plague which has more than one means of destruction. It will have a combined arsenal of weapons united for greater effect. Additionally, though it is explained in advance like the other plagues, it will be a plague which can be avoided. Thus, it is a text of belief in the word of the Lord as much as anything else. Those who hear and who comply with the warning will be safe from its consequences. Those who either don't hear or fail to comply will not be safe. Several of the false gods of Egypt will come under attack during this plague. 
The first will be Nut, the sky goddess. The next will be Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. And the third will be Set, which is the god of storms. The Lord, Jehovah, is teaching the Egyptians that he is the one true God, and he is also teaching this to Israel as well. He is more powerful than these gods because he is the one, the only, and the true God. So let us pay heed to this truth as well. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Before the beginning of the plagues, we looked at the patterns which run through those plagues. One of them was that there were three groupings of the plagues. This is now the third in the final group to come. Each of the three groups, as this one does, began with the command for Moses to rise early in the morning and go out to meet Pharaoh. However, there is a difference in this one. In both the first plague and the fourth plague, not only was Moses told to rise early to go out and meet Pharaoh, but he was told to do so by the water. For example, here's how it reads at the beginning of the fourth plague. It said in Exodus 8.20, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. In this seventh plague, the portion about going out to the water has been left off. In this meeting, there's more of a sense of urgency, and the demand seems to be more of a fearful threat than a petition for reasonable understanding. And it is also true that plagues one and four were announced by the Nile because they dealt with the Nile's waters. However, the location at the announcement of Plague 7 isn't given because it comes from heaven and thus it covers all locations. Verse 13 goes on, And say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. This is the 18th time that the term Hebrew has been used in the Bible and it is the 12th in the book of Exodus. We're again reminded that Jehovah is in fact the God of the Hebrew people. Five times in Exodus, the term God of the Hebrews has been used, and this is the fourth time that the entire title, Yehovah Elohei Ha'ivrim, or Yehovah, God of the Hebrews, has been used. Considering that the term Hebrew is used only 38 times in the entire Old Testament and only about 50 times in the whole Bible, it's important to remember how often it is used in the book of Exodus. God has called out this people for himself and he has identified himself with them. This foundational principle is necessary to remember because he shows the same care for them in the book of Revelation, which precedes the millennial reign of Christ, where he will reign among them after bringing them out of the control of the world once again. When the church age is over, Israel will be the focus once again. Those Gentiles who see this precept and they receive this precept Aligning with Israel will fall under his care. Those who don't will face a different end. Verse 13 continues, Let my people go that they may serve me. This is the exact same wording that has been used on several occasions already. The Lord demands that they now be released to serve him. They're not pharaohs and therefore the demand is valid. If it is favorably responded to, all will go well. If it is not, there will be consequences. Verse 14, for at this time I will send all of my plagues to your very heart. This is an emphatic announcement in the Hebrew. The previous six plagues were brought against an already stubborn man with an already hard heart. The first five of them only made Pharaoh harden his heart by voluntary action, and the six initiated a penal hardening of his heart by the Lord. However, this one is intended to work on his heart in an entirely new way. 
It is to begin to alert him to the power of the Lord and the immense consequences of continued disobedience. In other words, even if this continues to harden his heart, as it will, it is intended to ultimately bring it to the breaking point, where he will voluntarily release the Hebrews. Whereas several of the previous plagues only afflicted the external part of the man, these next three are intended to afflict him to his very heart. And the words at this time are certainly speaking of all of the coming plagues. They would arrive in rapid succession as if blows in a boxing match. In this verse, the term for plagues is unique to the book of Exodus. It is the noun form of the verb which is more commonly used. The word is magephah, and it indicates pestilence which leads to a slaughter, like a striking blow. Human death is associated with this plague. It is the same word that is used three times in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, in a passage which is speaking of the end times during the tribulation period, of which the plagues on Egypt, as you know, picture. Those three times, I want to read you all three of them so you can see the parallels. This is from Zechariah 14. And this shall be the plague, that word magephah, with which the Lord will strike all of the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And then a little further down, it says, Such also shall be the plague, the magephah, on the horse and the mule, on the camel and on the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague the third time be. So great will be these coming plagues upon Pharaoh that he will actually have to admit defeat, and he will let the people of Israel go. As John Calvin says about this verse, it announces that they will be plagues that will not only strike the head and the arms, but penetrate to the very heart and inflict a mortal wound. Verse 14 goes on, and on your servants. Like previously, we've seen this in a couple other plagues, the plague will come upon the servants of Pharaoh. Because he fails to allow the Hebrews to serve the Lord, his own servants will suffer from the hand of the Lord. Verse 14 going on, and on your people. In the previous verse, the Lord said, let my people go. If he fails to release the Lord's people, his own people will suffer. If he complies, his people will be safe. And the reason for this is made explicitly clear. Verse 14 goes on, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The Lord is God, and besides him, there is no God. He is unique, and he is sovereign. This 14th verse of Exodus 9, believe it or not, is tied directly to the opening statement and the first two of the Ten Commandments, which are given in Exodus chapter 20. Here are those words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. He's saying, I am and there is no other. There's none like me in all of the earth. And then he repeats that in those Ten Commandments. And this prohibition in the second commandment is explained in detail in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Here's what it says there. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke, spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act, act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Keep thinking of Egypt and the false gods that are being judged. 
the likeness of any animal that is on the earth or the likeness of any winged bird in the, that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. The lesson of verse 14 is a lesson we are to never forget. We are to learn and remember that there is no God like the Lord because there is no God but the Lord. Verse 15, now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. This is actually a very difficult verse in the Hebrew. It is in the past tense, as is noted in the New King James Version, but their wording is still lacking the force of the Hebrew. The King James Version completely botched the translation of this verse, putting it in the future tense, which sets up a contradiction in the account. They translate it this way, For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. Young's literal translation says it as is written in the Hebrew. Listen to what it says. For now I have put forth my hand, and I smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou art hidden from the earth. The words are past tense, and yet they show the entire scope of what the Lord is capable of doing, what he has done, and what he will do. It is an announcement of the entire process beginning to end. He will strike Pharaoh, he will strike Pharaoh's people, and pestilence will be a part of it, but not the whole of it. And the whole process will include their being cut off from the earth. He could have already done this, but thus far it had not fully come to pass, and the reason for this is given in the next verse, verse 16. But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up. The word translated as I have raised you up is a single word based on the verb amad, which means to stand, or in essence, to keep alive. The Lord kept Pharaoh standing through the entire process thus far instead of striking him down for a reason. This is set in contrast, for example, to the magicians, who in verse 11 last week we saw they were described as not being able to stand before Moses. There the same word, amad, was used. Where they could no longer stand, Pharaoh could because the Lord caused him to stand. There is purpose and there is intent in this, which is explained as we continue. Verse 16 goes on, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. This entire 16th verse is quoted by Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 9, it's the 17th verse, and he does it to reveal and to demonstrate the absolute sovereignty of God. There he uses a different word for raise up than the Greek translation of the Old Testament, though. After citing this, he continues with the words, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he, whom he wills, he hardens. Paul's choice of wording back in the book of Romans, was to demonstrate to the Jews of his time that their national rights and their privileges under the Lord were not inalienable because they thought they were. Oh, we're God's people and nothing will change that. God was neither unjust nor arbitrary in his rejection of them. Rather, he is sovereign over his dealings with man, even man who bears his name, even Israel. What God wills is what will happen. And at times he even explains the purposes for it. 
but he owes us no explanation at all. He is God, we are man. Pharaoh has been given an explanation for the events which have come to pass and others which will transpire. Israel has likewise been given an explanation for their rejection. It's recorded in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and all the way through the prophets of the Old Testament. He explained what was coming if they didn't obey him. What is most notable is that despite being told the reason, both Pharaoh and Israel continued to act exactly as the Lord intended. There's no outwitting God. Even with all of his cards taken out and laid on the table, you can't outwit him. Likewise, the Antichrist of the end times has the advance notice of everything that is coming. All of the details are written in the Bible, and yet it will happen exactly as the Lord said it will happen. There is nothing that he can do to change it, even if he tried. His attempts to subvert the Bible would only turn out to be a portion of the fulfillment of it. Pharaoh of the past, Israel of today, and the Antichrist of the future were marked for ruin. Unlike Pharaoh and the Antichrist, though, Israel's ruin will end, and they will again be exalted. Such is the nature of the sovereignty of God. Verse 17, as yet you exalt yourself against my people and that you will not let them go. As yet you exalt yourself against my people. The word exalt is the word salal. It means to cast up or to lift up, like if you were building a dam or a rampart. It's connected to the word meaning highway, which carries the same connotation. A highway is built up higher than the surrounding terrain. There is in the Bible a contrast between the correct highway and the incorrect one. Like Pharaoh here in the book of Jeremiah, and to their detriment, the people of Israel had left the proper highway. Here are his words. Because my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in pathways and not on a highway. But Isaiah foresaw a time when they would again take the correct one. That's recorded in Isaiah chapter 62. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. It might seem like a roundabout way of explaining Pharaoh's actions, but his exalting himself is simply a pattern which is followed by others, be they Israel or be they one of us. But whether it is casting up a rampart against the Lord's people or even the Lord himself, sometimes we just keep on doing what does not make any sense. In this verse, the words are a statement. They're not a question. But in them may actually be a sense of incredulity. Aren't you tired of this yet? Aren't you tired of heaping up a rampart which hinders only you and not me? Stop opposing me. Stop exalting yourself and let my people go. A point that we can see from this verse and which is plainly evident is that if Pharaoh had yielded to the word of the Lord, the plagues would have ended. If he were to yield to them now, there would be no further destruction. In other words, we cannot read into this that God created Pharaoh for destruction. Rather, Pharaoh's free will has acted against the Lord and his free will has brought down this calamity on him and on his domain and it will continue to bring it on him until he's destroyed. God's pre-knowledge of Pharaoh's decisions does not mean that Pharaoh did not make those decisions. He did, and the consequences for them belong to him alone. 
You're a terribly stubborn soul there, Pharaoh. Aren't you ready yet to yield to me? You're obstinate right down to your bones marrow. This will end badly for you, but you just can't see. Your water has turned to blood, and a zillions of frogs haven't made you wise. You've seen the land filled with lice, and everything around you was corrupted with flies. Your livestock has died from pestilence, and your bodies have been covered with festering boils. Your hard heart just makes no sense. Now it's time for you to end my people's toils. Our second thought today is advanced warning. This is verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. In past plagues, the day of the plague has been announced in advance as tomorrow. However, with this plague, even the timing of the day is given. This is meant to demonstrate that Jehovah is the Lord of every aspect of what will occur, even of time itself. Every element of the plague is under his control. The region of the plague is within his control and the very timing of it as well. The Lord is demonstrating absolute sovereignty over all aspects of creation. Further, the wording of the Hebrew of this verse is given as a confirmation of his words in verse 14. There he said in verse 14, ki That you may know that there is none like me. In this verse, he says, Asher lo such as not been like. There is none like Jehovah, and none can do like Jehovah. What he does is beyond the ability of any other because it comes from the one who is, and there is no other. What the Egyptians would experience on the morrow would be unlike any other such event in the history of the entire nation. The stories from years past of great storms or unique weather events would pale in comparison to what lies ahead just a few hours hence. The event is actually referred to in both Psalm 78 and Psalm 105. In fact, this word barad or hail is mentioned only 29 times in the entire Old Testament and 20 of them are found either in Exodus or in those Psalms referring to the Exodus account. But despite the unique nature of the coming plague upon Egypt, there are other plagues of hail recorded in the Bible as well. One notable one is found in the book of Joshua. In a battle where the enemy was already defeated and they'd gone into full retreat, the Lord handled those who fled. Here's what it says about them. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beit Haran that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. And two more such displays are promised to come during the tribulation period. One is seen in the first trumpet judgment where it says this, The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and there were th they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And then the other is seen in the final bowl judgment, and great hail from heaven fell upon man, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Egypt is going to receive a good, resounding pounding during their plague. But unlike the coming tribulation period, at least the Lord granted them terms of mercy. He gave them the timing of the plague, the nature of the plague, and what to do about it. It is to be a test of individual trust concerning the word of the Lord. Verse 19, therefore send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field for the hail shall come down on every man and on every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home and they shall die. 
It is noted that in Egypt, the livestock were often left in the open country from about January until April. This was the time when the grass was the most abundant. At other times, the Nile would start to overflow its banks and the livestock would have to be brought into shelters. Now we have the Nile, it's been dammed up at the Aswan Dam and there's no longer this problem. But the timing of this event is believed to be right around February because of the wording concerning the flocks. This then aligns perfectly with the coming final plague, which is the Passover, which is about the March-April time frame. It is during this early part of the year that the announcement is made and the warning is given. Those who pay heed will be saved. Those who don't will die. It is the first time that the loss of human life is explicitly mentioned as a result of a coming plague. The Lord has raised the stakes and yet he is granted mercy at the same time through his warning. It is an exacting parallel to what is coming in the tribulation period. God has given a warning in advance for those who must suffer through that time. Chapter 13 of Revelation says that in order to function in the coming post-rapture society, one will need to take the mark of the beast. Here's what it says there. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. However, chapter 14 shows what the consequences of taking that mark will be. It says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. A warning has been given to those who dwell in Egypt, Pharaoh's domain, and a warning has been given to the world of the tribulation period, the domain of the Antichrist. The question is, who will pay heed? In your wrath, remember mercy, O God. Remember that we are but flesh and wither as grass. Short is the time that on this earth we trod, and oh, how quickly away do our days pass. Who could stand if you were to fairly judge our sin? Who could say, yes, I here today am free of guilt? No, our lives testify that we are done in, and with our deeds only condemnation we have built. But you, O God, are rich in mercy to us. You have cut through the bars of iron and the chains of brass. You have sent your son, your beloved Jesus, for fallen man. This marvel has come to pass. Our third thought is who will pay heed? Verses 20 and 21. Right before I gave you that poem at the end of section two, the thought that a warning was given to those who dwell in Egypt, Pharaoh's domain. And a warning has been given to the people of the tribulation period, which is the domain of the Antichrist. The pertinent question in both of those circumstances is who will pay heed? And the answer is the first eight words of the next verse. He who feared the word of the Lord. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. Of those Egyptians who realized that Jehovah is worthy of fear, there was a display of wisdom. As the proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. These servants of Pharaoh began to display wisdom because they began to fear the Lord. They paid heed to his words, and they readied themselves for what they were certain was coming. Those in the tribulation period, 
Those who miss the call of the Lord in the catching away, they're going to have to decide what they're going to do. Will they ignore the word? Will they take the mark of the beast and be lost? Or will they take the narrow path? Only time will tell who is who. But the book of Revelation does say that there will be a great multitude that will finally learn to fear the word of the Lord and to pay heed. Here are the words of their notable deeds of faith, which will be recorded for all eternity. It says here, I saw the thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It should be noted that in this verse it never mentions Pharaoh's people as it did in the previous verses. It says the servants of Pharaoh and then after that the servants after them. If I were to look for a reason why it is because Pharaoh is a picture of the Antichrist of the future. Everyone, every person on earth who enters the tribulation will be, by default, servants of the devil and thus servants of his representative, the Antichrist, with maybe the exception of the 144,000 who are sealed. This then is a picture of those who realize that the Lord is the Lord and that they have eventually acknowledged that fact. They may be the crummy preachers who never believed the Bible, which the world is full of at this time. Now, they are the devil's servants, and they're doing his bidding. Not only that, they're also leading their own flocks down that same crummy path to destruction. However, when they realize their error after the rapture, they will finally learn to protect their own servants and the flocks that are under them. This then gives us a reasonable explanation for the great multitude that will refuse the mark of the beast. A simple word like servant gives us clues to pay attention to in order to see the pictures of what lies ahead when the world heads into the great calamities that it is destined to endure. Our final verse of today is verse 21. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Of course, there are those who had already endured six plagues and yet still refused to acknowledge the word of the Lord. They did not regard the word of the Lord and they left their flocks out for destruction. Solomon beautifully describes this type of reprobate in the Proverbs as well, and he gives a contrast to him also. Here's what he said. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. In order to be honored, one must show humility. Bowing to the Lord as the greater is a sign of humility. Fearing the word of the Lord and his instruction is also a sign of humility. When one fears the word, they will heed the word and carefully apply it to their life. Some will take this path and they will be saved, but there will be an immense number that will put their temporary desires for life and food above any eternal reward that they could be granted. They will care nothing for their flocks and they will leave them for destruction. Here's how Matthew Henry speaks about such folks. Obstinate unbelief is deaf to the fairest warnings and the wisest counsels, which leaves the blood of those that perish on their own heads. Only time will tell which are which. At the rapture, everyone left behind will be in the exact same position. However, the Lord is merciful, and he will grant life to those who put him above all else. Great is our God who grants us the freedom to accept him or to reject him. These stories have been recorded to show us what really happened in the past and to show us the story of redemptive history as it slowly unfolded. 
in individual bites, they give us glimpses of what the Lord disdains and the things that he rejoices in. In the larger picture, we see the whole scope of what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do all the way through until the end of time. Many generations have come and gone, and the vast majority of people have not had the enormous blessings that we have today. We have the whole record of God's word. We have churches everywhere. We have Christian TV, and we have Christian radio in abundance. And yet, it may be that we still haven't made peace with God. If the people of the past were swept away for not heeding the word of the Lord, how much more deserving are we of it today? But the Lord is there, and he's calling out to us, and he's waiting on us to act. Time is fleeting, though, and all things must come to an end before that day comes for you, and it very well may be today. And I'll tell you, a person that used to attend with us out on the church, out on the beach, church on the beach, she died this past week. She was about my age. Somebody sent me an email and said, do you know that she died? And I don't know what the reason is, but I have a feeling it was suicide because she, you know, didn't heed the word of the Lord. I could be wrong on that. But somebody posted something about depression on her wall after she had died. We don't know our end. We don't know it. And we need to put our faith and our trust in the word now before that day comes, whatever happens to us. And I would hope and pray that you would make your peace and get right with God today. The way to do that is through Jesus Christ. So please let me tell you what you need to know. You are separated from your God. You were born separated from him. We were born in iniquity according to the Psalms. We were conceived in sin. There's a division between us and God because we inherited our first father's sin. And until that gets remedied, we will forever be separated from God. But God in his grace and in his love and in his mercy stepped out of the eternal realm and entered humanity. In the womb of a woman, he united and became the God-man, Jesus Christ. And now he can put his hand on his infinite father who we're separated from, and he can put his finite hand on us, and he can say, I am the bridge between the two because I came at the time of the law and I fulfilled the law, which is contrary to you. And then I died as a sacrifice, which is allowed under that law to take away your sins. And if you'll accept what I have done, all of your sin will be placed on my cross. It'll be nailed there along with the law. And then you can have new life through my resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that this is true. It's the most documented occurrence in all of antiquity. And yet people just dismiss it. It's the only chance for us to get right with God. If you have never called out to Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you and purify you and lead you to that life which is truly life, please do so today. We don't know the day of our demise, just like my friend that died just this past week. All right? Our closing verse today comes from Proverbs 16. It's the 20th verse. He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Next week is Exodus 9, 22 through 35. It's, uh, let's see, they will moan and they will wail. Yes, it's true. It's the plague of hail, part two. (laughs) Wasn't that a nice closing verse today? He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. What a rock of refuge in a most unstable world. What a fixed and firm anchor in a sea of turmoil and chaos. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who has us bound up in him for all eternity. And thank God for the Bible, which lights our path and gives us joy and comfort every time we pick it up and read it. Pick up your Bible and read it. A great God is revealed in its pages. 
The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? I got a poem today based on the verses we just looked at. Sneaky Charlie, I read them at the beginning. I read it all the way through the sermon and then I give you the same verses again in a poem form. Hopefully you'll remember them. It's called Raining Down from Above. Then the Lord said to Moses, as we know, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, this is a warning. Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, plainly, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues, even so, to your very heart and on your servants too, and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So I warn you. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the land, a just and right display of my magnificence. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up in withholding from you destruction or dearth that I may show my power in you as I pour my cup and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself, yes, even so, against my people and that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down and how such has not been in Egypt with its climb since its founding until now. Therefore send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field for the hail shall come down on every man and any to whom my word will not yield. And every animal which is in the field is found and is not brought home shall die on that piece of ground. He who feared the word of the Lord, we will see, there among Moses, Pharaoh's servants, made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses showing wise observance. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field, shunning that kind and merciful word, their hearts to him, they did not yield. How many times, I would like to know, does the Lord have to prove his word is true? What more could you ask? Some great heavenly show is that which is required by you? His word is splendid, holy, and pure. It is filled with proofs if you will but open your eyes. It is faithful, reliable, and sure, and it is sufficient to make you wise. Rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. O God, thou who art abundant in love, it is you alone that our souls shall bless. Help us to receive and apply to our lives your superior word as we wait on the return of Jesus, our precious Lord. And in that day, O great, glorious, and awesome God, in your magnificent presence, we shall trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the wonderful lessons that you give us in your word showing us that you have given everything necessary for us to just call out to you and be saved or to be obstinate and stubborn and leave ourselves and our flocks out in the field for sure destruction. Lord, you know there are people in our own lives, family members, maybe a mother or a brother or a sister that hasn't called on Jesus. You know their obstinate heart and we would ask that you would send your spirit upon them to soften their heart. Send somebody into their lives that has the right words at the right moment to change them and to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ before that day comes, because it is coming and it probably won't be long now. What we're seeing in the Exodus account of, of uh, the time of Pharaoh is going to be repeated on a global scale. These massive plagues that will destroy humanity because of our own choice to reject you. May it not be so to those we love. Please hear our prayers for them. 
And I pray for each person here. They have their own needs, their own uh, shortcomings, their own trials, their own tribulations, as I do myself, Lord. Look into our hearts and give us comfort. In the week ahead, tend to our needs. And uh, should you tarry, we'll be sure to be back here next week, if possible, to praise you once again. And if we're not here, wherever we are, I would ask that you would just remind us of your presence. Have your great hand of, of glory upon us. Tend to our needs and be with us through all things. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our great Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, we get the uh, instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. We've got some people that have never been here, and they're just visiting for today. And so uh, I'd like to explain a little bit about the Lord's Supper that uh, uh, may be different from what they know, is that... Um, in addition to these coming directly out of the uh, Bible, the elements actually prefigure the uh, body and blood of Jesus Christ, as he himself said. But this is the uh, matzah bread. This is the bread that the Jewish people have used for thousands of years, 3,500 years they've been using this type of bread. It has no yeast in it. Yeast in the Bible is a picture of sin. It's a picture of being puffed up. You put in yeast and it causes um, corruption, and at the same time, if you cook it, it causes it to puff up, like pride in us. There is no pride in the Lord Jesus. There's no sin in the Lord Jesus. And also, if you look closely at it, you hold it up to the light, you'll see holes all the way through the bread. And that's a picture of his back when the uh, Romans struck his back and it tore into it. It, made, it pierced his skin. And then also, if you look at it, you can see stripes on it. The way it's cooked, there's stripes, which would be the, the stripes on his back as it tore into his flesh and went down there. And so much more. Everything about this pictures the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we have the, the wine, or in this case, grape juice, and that's a picture of the uh, blood of Jesus Christ being shed for us, as he himself said. And so when you take this, you want to remember that we are taking this in remembrance of what he did, the torture that he went through that we don't have to go through. If you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you're not going to go through the end times tribulation. You will have trouble in this world, but you're not going to go through the great tribulation. Whatever generation is here, when that happens... They will be exempt from it. And all of the people of the past that have put their faith in Christ will rise together with us if we're that generation, which I think we might be. And we're going to go up to be with the Lord together. And then the world's going to go into a calamity like nobody's ever seen. But we're exempt from it because of this, what this represents. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, just as Christ's body came back out of the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam orei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord or God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Sorry about that, folks. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the remembrance that we celebrate here of what Christ did on the cross for us. Help us to carry it in our hearts every moment that we live, that we might not sin against you, and that we'll live holy lives in your presence. And when we fall short, as we all do, forgive us. Purify us and lead us back to a right relationship with you. Help us not to stray from you. That would be my one prayer, Lord. It's so easy to just get our eyes off of you. Help us to fix our eyes directly on Jesus and then not, not turn away. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. We do so in his name. Amen.